0: Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked.
1: You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick
2: Green. What up, man? How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Hey, you know, this is... Father uh, of a seven-year-old now? I am the father of officially a seven-year-old as of a few hours ago. And uh, that seven-year-old knows that it's his birthday because he's... uh, getting a lot of shit and he's very happy about it. So it was was a fun day. Um, We're excited, you know, as we just sent out a a message to patrons just a few hours before, uh, you know, we're recording this, announcing kind of a format shakeup a little bit. And long story very short is we're going to experiment with going monthly for a while um, because we feel like it gives us a little more time to plan for more ambitious stuff, get some new guests on, try some new content out. And it also helps us to fill this time before 2099 comes out in probably the year 2099 at this point uh, without feeling like we're just sort of treading water because, you know, we want the show to feel fresh. So we're going to try this out for a bit. We'll probably go back to biweekly, you know, in the next few months or something. But for now, we're doing this. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest momentarily and introduce sort of how we, you know, became uh, acquainted. But before I do, we got some patrons that need a shout out and it's been a while. So I'm going to shout these guys out right now. Um, let's go back to the beginning of August, and we've got Stanislav Sin, Ralph F- Feldmeyer, Ryan Creasy, Auto Named, Gabriel Sanchez, Gareth Ryan, Alfredo Ramirez, Dave Krausik, Kyle Baker, and just a few hours ago, Jillian D'Souza. If I've massacred your names, let me know. I'm sorry. I checked in with Auto Named because I was like, that feels like the Patreon system just auto named, but that's actually Auto Named's name. So. Thank you, Autoname, name for getting back to me about that. It's a pleasure to have you all. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, everyone. So, uh, so without further ado, you know, Blade Runner touches many different forms of art, as we talked about, you know, ad nauseum over the last six years of this show. One of the areas of art that it touches quite frequently is music. Usually, the kind of music that we're talking about is very Blade Runner aesthetic inspired, meaning it's very kind of synth forward. It feels like Vangelis. It feels like an homage to the sort of meditative, rainy Los Angeles vibes that the original film has, and that shows up in all sorts of different genres of music. You know, um, many of which are very popular right now, especially in the wake of Stranger Things and the kind of renaissance of arpeggiated, you know, synth music. But We have listeners out there who happen to be in a fantastic prog metal band who, and I don't want to pigeonhole you guys because I know you do more than just that. And indeed, on this EP, you can hear that. Um, But they mentioned that they were working on an EP of music inspired by the universe of Blade Runner, both films. And, uh, you know, that they listened to the show and they kind of reached out. So, you know, they sent us these files. Now, I got to say, we do get approached by quite a few people with things like this in different ways. You know, people write into the show. They send us what they're working on. and usually. The response is in earnest, like, thank you. This is great. We really love it. You know, we really appreciate it. But something about, I guess, the the level of detail that went into the music and into the videos and into the explanation of the philosophy behind it made us really want to connect more deeply with tonight's guest and his band. And uh, so without further ado, uh, we're welcoming to the show uh, Matt Motto from DeSona, a Chicago-based prog metal band. has been around for just over a decade. And uh Matt,
0: welcome to Shoulder of Orion, man. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm honored to be here. And that was a lovely introduction. Yes. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yes, welcome. You're you're from my hometown, by the way.
0: Oh really? You're from Shout
1: Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> All, All right. right, born and raised.
2: Nice, nice. He actually was raised in a prog metal band, believe it or not. So he's also you know not only not only from Chicago, <laughs> yeah. but the same music yeah. scene. <laughs> um, not, not quite
1: so matt usually what we do uh, when we have people on our shows and new guests is we want to find out what their relationship with the material is so patrick and i have at length many times talked about how we came to at a place in our life to fall in love with blade runner and then of course the incredible sequel blade blade runner 2049 what was that like for you what how what is the love of this material that has pushed you to actually write about it in your own work
0: sure um, well i was introduced to the original uh blade runner film through my singer and um i want to say it was relatively late in my relationship with him you know a few years after i had met him you know he had talked about the movie before and i had never seen it i i'm not even sure i had heard of it to be quite honest Um, but he's like, you know, we should, we should watch this, you know, sometimes. So, um, I was hanging out with him and, and, um, we just decided, or he decided, you know, to put it on and we watched it. And I just, I mean, I just remember sort of entering this trance state. Like, what is, what am I, you know, watching here? It's almost like this thing that I've been waiting for. I'm finally sort of being shown it, you know, even though I didn't even know what it was. Um, so I was totally entranced by it, um, Obviously inspired by it. I mean, we, even though our other albums have nothing to do with Blade Runner, I I promise you, we've used Blade Runner as, you know, some sort of visual inspiration, some sort of muse that we just keep on the shelf when we're feeling, you know, dry at the well. Um, So that first film, you know, hit me as hard as it possibly could have. And I still remember when 2049 came out, I didn't, you know, get to see it right away. I'm one of those guys that watches you know, for the reviews before I decide to see something and the reviews were great. Um, but I never, you know, like buy an advanced ticket or anything like that. Um, but once again, my, uh, the singer David, um, he had seen that I think opening weekend and I was like, you know, how was it? Like, you know, was it really worth it? Like the reviews are really, really good. And you know, he just like, it was kind of a, like a one sentence. He's like, you just like, you have to see it. Like it's, it is amazing. Like it's almost impossibly good because of how high, you know, we, um, how high of a standard we hold that original film somehow they made something, you know, almost better, you know, j- j- at least equally as compelling. And so of course I watched it and I, I, I mean, it was amazing. And, and I, I was already sort of um, garnering a, a deep respect for Denny Villeneuve and like, you know, his films. And then like, you know, to see that was just like this, this guy gets it like this guy, you know, I I couldn't I couldn't have thought of a better homage and extension of that original film when I saw, you know, 2049. Do you have a favorite of the two? That is a great question. I I think it would be um, 2049, um, maybe for for less than stellar reasons. Um, It just looks so beautiful. It is a gorgeous movie, not to say the original is not gorgeous because it is, but. You know, 2049, um, having such a previous love for the, you know, um, 1982 film and then having this one come out and just seeing it in like full modern, you know, realization. That was just just something else. Um, But also the story, I I was so intrigued by the story and how they took it. And um, the whole concept of the child and everything, I'm like, you know, this when you're trying to imagine, that original film, it's like, how if you were to make a sequel, how how can you keep that intrigue up? Like, what what can we introduce that would be like even more interesting than you know this guy who falls madly in love with a replicant, you know, like a non-human created thing? Um, and it's like, okay, introduce the possibility of this child. Like these things are able to create life, and 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 that's you know creating this whole stirring revolution and all this stuff. So I I mean I again like I, I was just astounded uh by the writing and the cinematography. I mean I'm a huge Roger uh Deakin's fan and like everything about it. the music was perfect. You know, it was a little bit derivative, but I I I I appreciate that I guess they went on the safe side with that. But but I, like I just I couldn't I, it would be difficult for me to find a bad thing to say about that film. It's so refreshing because a lot of the time uh, when we ask people that question, there's
2: a kind of a caginess about the response. And people, sometimes it'll come out that they do like 2049 more, but they're very kind of like apologetic about it and they have to qualify it a lot. But um, it's nice. And I think it's probably a more common sentiment than we realize for people, especially who got into Blade Runner as like an adult for 2049 to speak in a more urgent and relevant way and we just did a you know an episode on that jamie did with one of our listeners james and you know it's a it's a conversation that continues to come up well one other question before we get to disona and to the bands and all that stuff uh you know I, as a fellow musician i'm curious what are your thoughts on the scores versus each other if you can you know compare them to each other like is there does one of them speak
0: to you more than the other and why um that is a good question. Um, as far as vangelis goes um i my my initial exposure to his music, to my knowledge, was the original Blade Runner. Um, now, truth be told, through um Spotify and streaming apps, I quite often like go to vangelis's artist station and just you know let it let it do the shuffle and so um other scores from other films he did that films I may not have seen. Um, or films I have seen that I didn't realize was his own work. You know, I, I've become a little more, uh, familiar with his other scores and sort of his style, I guess you could say. So his, his original score really was to me something truly like original and, um, some people may say it's weird. I've I've heard that about the original film. People say, Oh, that's, that's a weird one. You know, it's like, to me, it was never weird. It was like, no, this is everyone who was involved, all the big players, they went all in. They, they, they took the time to understand the material and they created this compelling piece of art um, that is like respective of like of everything involved. So the music's no different. Like the music's sc- the musical score is um it's not uh like like too structured or or rhythmic or anything like that it's a lot of texturing a lot of you know like here's a random burst of a synth note here and then you know it's got a long tail we're gonna let that tail run and swell and all these things but like when you're witnessing what's on screen it's like oh i mean could it be anything but that like that's perfect you could not produce that sort of a vibe you know with a cello or some sort of organic instrument so now on the other side of the coin with 2049, again, it was, it, was, it was great to hear the respect that Hans Zimmer, and I understand he had a couple of, like he, um, uh, he had collaborators that he was working with. So I'm not sure, you know, what was all Hans and what was, you know, these other people he was uh, collaborating with. But they, you could tell they had a lot of respect for the original sounds and they um, sort of w- sought out ways of creating recreating you know those those sounds and then adding a little bit of their own stuff in there um but truth be told you know Hans Zimmer he doesn't quite do it for me it's a little bit uh, a little bit thin you know it's like um like a mile wide and an inch deep you know with his sort of stuff especially these days you know that like that thing we've gotten so used to hearing the blah, you know that low trailer trailer type music thing um, I, I've grown a little bit tired of that. And, and, um, he had some interesting, uh, sound design within the score itself. Uh, some stuff, you know, like, like when there were some of those, um, car chases, not car chases, but, um, you know, what the vehicles are called spinners. I don't know if there's still spinners in the second one, but, um, yeah, so when the spinner chase is happening, there there you could tell they sampled, I mean it sounds like formula 1 cars that have been, you know, modulated and stuff to to make that and it's in the score, it's not like the cars themselves. So I appreciate stuff like that. I appreciate sound effect work in the musical score because as you've heard DeSona does a lot of that. There there are just certain situations where it's like Ah, we know what's going on in the story, and the composition. How can we elevate this? There, there's no other way to elevate this, but with a sound effect, that's something like this. And I, I couldn't tell you what that sound effect is, but um, I appreciate that those sorts of things. So to answer your question, I would most likely have to say the original score does it for me. Um, but I do have an appreciation and a respect for the 2049 score as well.
2: It's a great answer. I, I I don't want to derail the episode entirely, but as you're talking, I was thinking because I, you know, as, as a musician, when I watch a movie, I, I always have very complicated things to work through with the way that I'm interpreting a score because I'm listening for so many things in it. And as Jamie knows, it's usually the thing that I complain about when I see movies. It's like, oh, it was great except for the score, and then I like come up with 150 reasons like why the score wasn't good enough. And then I listen to it more, and then I start to like it more, and then I'm like, oh, okay, never mind, because I have to kind of get out of my own way with that a lot of the time. And I have done that for the most part with 2049. I that was the only complaint that I had the first time I saw the movie, and at that it was it was a light complaint because I still appreciated the score, but it felt like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I fucking hated it. No, I didn't hate it. Yeah. But it took me it took me a while to get to a place of loving it. And now I really do love it, but I only love like 25% of it and the rest of it I feel like is just sort of like, you know, dirgy kind of scene setting stuff that feels kind of extraneous to me. And I think I as you're talking I'm I'm discovering part of why that might be. I think it's because when we hear Vangelis, we hear the music of exploration. Like we hear him in literally uncharted territory a lot of the time because what he was doing in terms of the sense that he was programming himself and the sounds that he was coming up with and the hand percussion and all the crazy shit in his nova studio like it didn't really exist elsewhere in the way that he was using it and i think there there i think that the the excitement and the novelty of finding genuinely new sounds is kind of what defines the tapestry that makes 2019's film sound so deeply resonant like you were saying it's so deep right I think part of the problem with 2049 and why I don't love the score quite as much is because a lot of what they're doing had already been discovered and it was kind of them trying to reconnect with it. So there's a reverence in it and there's a beauty to it. And the musicianship is good. Like, especially I want to say Hans Zimmer, I I think probably did about 10% of the score. It's really Ben Walfish that did the scoring for it and Ben Walfish and I I go to bat for him all the fucking time, is a genius and an amazing composer. And if you want to know that for a fact, listen to Andy Muschietti's 2017 It score, the score that he did for that, which to my mind is one of the great scores of the 21st century so far. I think it's a fucking masterpiece. Great score. Um, I think that he did most of the scoring for this, and he did it because... You know, they had the CS eighty that that Zimmer had gotten and he dug up, and it was all blowing up, and they had fun with it, and they're like, "Let's just make music with this." And then he went on tour, and Wallfish had to score the rest of the film, basically. So, what I think, I think that's kind of the difference a little bit, and the movie doesn't do that. The movie still feels exploratory and new and different to me in a way that the score doesn't quite. And I think that's part of why it doesn't doesn't speak quite as relevantly to me. Anyway, we can come back to this if you all both have opinions on that too, because I'm sure you, I'm sure, sure you do, but. To move on to the project for a moment, um, you mentioned Dissona and sound experimentation and things. Can you give us some window into who Dasona is and like how you started, what you've done since, and where you're going next?
0: Sure. Um, so Dasona, let's see here. Um, way back in the high school days of, uh, well, myself, um, uh, I was in a classical guitar course um, in high school, and uh, I was probably put in guitar two or three of that course there's sort of four sections if you know anything you know about like being in an orchestra or or like a um you know a concert band or anything like that so i was in one of the middle to lower chair sections and the um uh chamber master was craig hamburger who's our now bassist um, So I had a, there, I think there was a battle of the bands or something. And I kind of wanted to play that. I was already sort of jamming with some people and it wasn't really going anywhere. So I was trying to put together what I thought would be a more solid band to, you know, do this battle of the bands. And I approached Craig about it. We had actually met before through um, a, a mutual friend of ours, but I hadn't really developed a, a friendship with him just yet. So I had asked him sort of, if he'd be interested in joining the gig and he did, And we didn't do the gig, but um, we did start to form a band. Uh, It was through him that we met David Dubenik, who is our um, incredible vocalist. And uh, we had a sort of a long-winded search for drummers, which I feel like is kind of par for the course for a lot of bands. And we ended up meeting our uh, drummer, Drew Goddard, through a Craigslist ad, of all things. And we actually thought it was a scam because the Craigslist ad had every band that we were influenced by um, and it, it was just so, so nicely worded. We were like, there's no way this guy is real or, or there's no way this guy can live up to what he's saying. And then we, you know, we contacted him and he came to our practice spot and and we were just blown away by him. And that's when the band was formed. That was around 2000. And I want to say, oh boy, like seven or eight, maybe even 2009 that we sort of solidified. And since then, um, we had a self-titled album that, um, featured all of the musicians I just mentioned to you. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because we have an album we don't really talk about called 10 masks that if you go to torrent to Sona's discography um, and it says, you know, official discography, they will include 10 masks. Somehow that ended up, you know, in, in these, uh, in these discographies, but we don't really talk about that because it didn't contain our, our drummer that we know. I think it's actually programmed drums. So we we treat our 2012 self-titled as the beginnings of, you know, the first official album of DeSona. And then uh, from there, it was interesting. We When we put that album out, we had absolutely no idea how to release an album. So uh, we joined Bandcamp and we put the album out quite literally. We uploaded the album and set it to public and it was out. And, um, you know, some people bought it a lot of people downloaded it and then we started to see it appearing in blogs all over the world almost more more so in europe than even in the states this thing was like creating this underground you know um interest that we we had no control over of nor did we know anything about you know um music pr like marketing we did not do anything with that and and things started to bubble sort of under our feet so then um 2016, we we uh, we released our second album, and uh, around that time we were approached by a, a promoter by the name of Milton Mendonka and he had uh, sort of found us. I, I would gather that he found us on one of those blogs, and he had a band called Lepros, which was sort of blown up at the time, a Norwegian prog band, and he asked that we um, open for the band and and on their first North American tour, and we were, said, of course, we'd be honored to. And uh, that tour happened in 2016. So the album came out January 2016. We went on tour by the end of that year. And the tour was flawless. You know, you hear all sorts of horror stories about tours going terribly wrong, vans getting robbed or who who knows what, uh, vans breaking down, you know, um, all that kind of thing. We had none of those issues. It was was fantastic. All of the shows were great. The, The fans were great. And, um, you know, from there we went right to work on our third album (laughs) and, um, you know, to, to keep this as short as possible, this is sort of a segue into why this EP even exists, but, um, we finished recording that third album, um, two weeks before, uh, the lockdowns occurred before, you know, it was the world just shut down. So truth be told, um, the energy that should be present when a band is in the final stages of recording an album that was four years in the making, that energy was absent. Okay. It was, it was a very, very difficult thing for me. I'm sure it was just as difficult for everyone else. So we completed this thing and we said, you know what? The world is shutting down. Like, like venues don't exist. How do you plan a CD release without a CD release show if that can't even happen? So we made the very difficult decision to just sit on the album and watch and so um, we began to have these uh, these weekly Discord meetings um, during that time. And I, I think, I, I don't know, maybe a month or two went by and um, I had the idea of like, all right, well, if we're sort of shaky about putting out, you know, this 10, 12, 13 song album, why don't we try to cut an EP, uh, something tight, something like three songs and um, and give that out? And the plan was just to just, you know, record it and put it out. Like just again, like, like we did our 2012, just put it out to get people remembering, you know, disona is still here and we're still thinking about the fans and, you know um, we're creating, you know, so um, we made the decision to do that. And we had uh, a couple of meetings about what it would even be about. And uh, we wanted to do a theme DP, which is something we've never done. Uh, uh, both the albums, they may, you might consider them concept albums, but um, there's no, sort of story involved but this was different this is where we said okay why don't we pick something you know some subject matter or, or uh fictional material or whatever and something we're passionate about and and focus the ep around that um so we had the list down to five things and at the top of the list was blade runner and you know we 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 all were agreement in agreement about blade runner there was no debate on that and then the other four things, you know, was a few members wanted that and a few members didn't. and But the Blade Runner was it was always unanimous. So it's like, all right, well, that's what we're going to do. And then, um, you know, from there, we, we went to work on the EP. And I could talk more about that if you want to do that in a different segment.
1: Before we do talk about that, I am curious about the name of your group. Where did that come from?
0: Everyone asks that. Now, if you search Google for Dasona, You're either going to get us or you're going to get some Italian fine leather handbag company. We came first. (laughs) I remember, I think back on MySpace, we started getting messages from this handbag company that was like, you know, what are you doing? And we, we just ignored them. Um, but Dissona is a portmanteau of two words, dissonant and persona. So if you listen to, you know, our 2012 album, um, you can sort of hear more of the musical dissonance. So the the name was sort of like, oh, we're a band that uses, you know, this musical dissonance. You can actually hear that. But it's also sort of metaphorical, you know, our approach to songwriting um, and everything that we do, you know, we don't want to do what's already been done, especially what's been done time and time again. We don't, we don't adhere to any of those um, norms. Uh, we want to do something new, but we want to make sure it's accessible. We want to make sure it's interesting to both, you know, uh, elitists, you know, those, because that's sort of the type of people we were in high school, those metal elitists. So we want to make something that appeals to them and, and ourselves, but also something that's very appealing to the casual listener, someone who listens to, you know, all sorts of different metal or all sorts of different genres, which is something else that we do. Um, so the name sort of reflects it in a couple of different ways, but it's, it's just a combination of those two words that I I came up with, um, sort of on the fly.
2: <laughs> awesome. I love it. That's really cool, man. I I love that. And uh, it's cool hearing the full history because I was looking you guys up uh you know online and and I saw that you had an album come out in 2012. I didn't realize that you went back that much, you know, earlier than that too just briefly one of the reasons why it's so hard to get a drummer jamie i don't have you ever been in a band of any kind jamie
1: i have not thank you
2: no (laughs) i i I bounced between about 18 bands and a 20 you know year period and they all fell apart but one of the common denominators was it's really hard to get a fucking drummer because you like have to rehearse at their house or else they're like constantly carting so much equipment around and uh, so I was just I was laughing because I have so many memories of like begging my friends to like come just do session drumming for like a recording session with my you know with bands that I was in because nobody could nobody could get a drummer. Um, anyway, but going back to uh, to this album and to the EP idea, you chose uh, I think really cool subject matter. We're going to talk about two of these tonight. And you'll be able to hear clips from them. Uh, There's one that we're going to hold off on because it has not actually been released yet. Um, But before we get into it, I want to say that not only is there audio, which is great, like the songs are awesome. There's also really ambitious videos for these things, for these things, for these songs that I hope you also check out. So we'll include links to, you know, everything that you are able to listen to when this drops so that you can. Um, and I want to talk about both of those. I want to talk about the musical choices and also the video choices and how you kind of did, did all those things. Um, so getting into it, can you just clarify, like, what exactly do you do within Dissona? Like, what what's your role?
0: Well, I, um, I'm i the lead guitarist, and I, I nowadays I do all guitars. Dissona is a four-piece, so we've got drums, bass, vocals, and guitars. In the past, we had experimented with having a secondary rhythm guitarist or a keyboardist, uh, but nowadays all guitars are me. Not only that, but I handle all of the production. Um, So all of the audio production, the recording, the editing, the mixing, the mastering, all of that. And not only that now, but I also do the video production. So, uh, DeSona as a whole directed, you know, all of the videos that you see and and will see, but I I, uh, was doing the editing myself. Um, So that was, it wasn't necessarily a new skill to me, but I had never edited something of this depth before. So the first video was extremely grueling. And then I, you know, from there, the other the other three were much less grueling. Um, but I also um, am sort of the core songwriter. So the way things work is whenever we were, were writing anything, the album was no different. This EP is no different. We have um, very intense and involved brainstorming sessions. And uh, we try to get descriptors down for as much, you know as of the subject matter as we can so we may um write out a track list like let's just say if it's if it's an album then okay yeah 10 10 songs on this album you know what's the general flow here like this song's going to be is it going to be an intense opener are we going to you know make it more of a light opener you know try to get as much of it sort of fleshed out there in words as we can and then i take over and i sort of write uh the, the initial drafts the compositions of these of these songs and I do so in guitar pro and then um you know send them off to the guys and we go from there but my job is um songwriter producer um you know video editor <laughs> all of those things but also just the guitarist that's a lot of work I gotta say because I saw your name coming up quite a
2: bit in the in the credits on these things and I was like man he's he's doing doing quite a lot um, let's yeah let, let's kind of go in, in terms of the compositional background and how things came together track by track a bit between the two that we're going to talk about, and maybe we can kind of tackle the song itself first and then the video for each. Does that sound good? Absolutely. So the first one uh, is is called The Prodigal Son, and it concerns Roy Batty's inception. And interestingly, some of his earliest activities, which we only see the aftermath of in Blade Runner. Can you take us a little bit about uh, through like the song's progression and how you kind of came around to it and how it develops?
0: Sure. Um, with all of these songs, um, the, the most difficult thing was sort of the character study aspect of it. Um, so, I mean, so much of it is non-musical. So much of it is, you know, watching the films, not only that, but like, you know, reading and and looking at uh, concept art and looking at fan art, like all of these things involving the character, so I can really try my best to understand what that character means and how I can um, sort of access that character's, you know, uh, uh, feelings and emotions and what they may do, um, how they may react, to their intensities. All of these things on my end become musical reflections. So I need to know everything that I can, every angle that I can, about the character that I'm writing music about. So with Roy Batty, you know, um, it was—I uh, I guess it wasn't all that difficult in the beginning because uh, of how many times I had watched the the film. Um, but trying to sort of, what's the word? We we wanted to show, and I say show, but I mean even in the music, if even just reading the lyrics, you know, and listening to the music, uh, we still wanted to show. Uh, what wasn't seen what what you know the the people who love the film like they haven't seen this stuff they haven't they haven't been exposed to these emotions and these thoughts and these actions that he may have uh you know been going through so we wanted to make sure with all three characters on the ep that um everything was as much unexplored territory as possible or at least you know an interesting angle on previously explored territory In the So with Roy, you know, I, I knew that I wanted—I wanted that birth. I wanted to—I wanted to feel Roy waking up. What—what what is, you know, I, I wanted that contrast of Roy as, for lack of a better word, a child, like a newborn in this world, um, to his his turn, um, to to his shift into this like violent, menacing, driven sort of you know being that's going to do whatever he can to get what he wants, and and that's that extension on his you know ever fleeting life. Um, so, uh, you know, from, from there, it's sort of, I don't know. It's almost like, uh, the, the, the musical decisions to me make perfect sense. Like if you're talking about, um, a child, you know, you know, someone new to this world, you're not going to start with some heavy full band, you know, boom, like all guns blazing kind of deal. Like, how do you sell that? How do you. oh yeah this is the part where roy opens his eyes for the first time he literally just got turned on and he's you know he's taking so much in so quick this this hyper intelligent being it's like what like that's gonna be you know like heavy full-on metal music like it just doesn't work for me so you know like like the pacing everything that you hear in the song is is going back to vangelis it's it's just me trying to be as as uh, sincere to the material as possible. Um, now, this is still music. Like if you forget the fact that we shot a music video, most people are just going to hear this. So there still needs to be some sort of um, tension, some sort of, you know, something in there that's going to bring the listener in. So the very first thing you hear in the song you know it's it's sort of minimalist but but it's in my opinion like the the uh the layers the 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 samples that i chose you know to use they just felt so great and so like oh man like and there's this newscast you know and it's talking about this exciting thing but the 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 uh the the musical bed you know that it's set over is so tense like something something's just not right about this you know what what this newscast is saying And, uh, you know, from there, we, we hear about all that. And then we're taken into the like into the lab with Tyrell, you know, talking to his creation, um, you know, getting just sort of gathering data, which is really what Tyrell most likely does best is just gathers data and, and, and works off of that. Um, so we, you know, we feel Roy open his eyes. The, the music intensity changes immediately. And then, you know, we hear Drew's drum roll. Um, we hear that sort of like you know um uh, stimulating bit in the in the synth uh uh strings that I use there, and then um Roy is shipped off, you know he's he's sent off to um uh, whatever his assignment would be, and I just sort of assumed it was military like this you know he's gonna be sent off you know to, to not to quote the podcast, but you know like the shoulder of orion um he even mentions you know that exactly, so I just assumed all right he's he's off to Jupiter. Um, and so from there, you know, that first instrument instrumental section that you hear is supposed to, you know, be exciting and stimulating and punchy and, you know, driving all of those things, um, that, that he might be experiencing. And, uh, when it breaks away and you hear Tyrell coming back, that's sort of a flashback, you know, like Tyrell is, has, has received a request from the military. And like, I know this stuff, a little bit of this is, um, uh, may may not have actually occurred, but I mean, if, if he's being sent to a military uh, assignment, I would, have, I would, have, I would have assumed the military had reached out to Tyrell corporation and said, Hey, like we need some of your best, you know, beings for this thing that this conflict that's happening over at the Tannhauser gate. Um, so when you hear Tyrell coming back, you know, he's, he's talking about that. He's like, all right, like it's, things are going well over there. We're going to send this one. Like, like he's definitely going to be out on that shipment. And he's going to go. Um, and then the next part of the song where David actually first enters is where um, uh, Roy, we're already sort of getting a sense of the delicate nature of Roy. You know, he's, he's I don't want to say robotic, but he's still sort of program, you know. Um, he's just sort of making an observation about his eyes and how they look like, you know, like, like his human counterparts eyes, but it's a lie, you know, like, like make no mistake about it. I am not human. Um, and, um, uh, you know, from there, he's sort of reflecting on his status. Like he's out in the middle of nowhere, the, the blackest sea, the blackest ocean. I loved using those, uh, sort of metaphors, you know, for the, the emptiness of space. He's out there alone. Um, and then, uh, you know, from there, the, the, the song goes, you know, we, we get that wonderful section, which I actually called C beams in the, in the composition, um, where it goes instrumental. And, and that was, that was about as close as I wanted to get to hearkening the original soundtrack, you know, so that section, you can hear the synth strings. There's a lot of layering involved but I still wanted it to be our own sort of take on that without it being, Oh, this is, I remember this from the soundtrack. Like we don't want any of that, but we do want the same emotion. So in that moment, we're experiencing Roy um, as he's, you know, witnessing these, these glistening, you know, lights uh, bouncing off of the, uh, you know, off of these massive ships, you know, that are out there. Um, and then from there, you know, that's where the turn begins. We start to, you know, feel Roy's emotion shift and he starts to sort of maybe self-realize that like man i for for all that i know for all that i'm capable of like you know i'm taking orders from this soft you know hunk of meat over here like like why and and you know like my life's dwindling and i've already seen so much like i don't want it to go out you know so that's where he starts to make the decision like whatever it takes i need to get back to where i came from earth you know and i and i need to you know confront possibly the the only person who can you know, grant me this wish, this, this extended life. Um, And so, yeah, the, you know, the song sort of takes him through that. It takes him through some of the violence that certainly occurred, you know, like him hijacking the shuttle, going back, uh, back to earth. And then we, we hear that newscast, which sort of recalls all of the, uh, all the horrific things that, that have happened. And then um, the section after that in the composition was literally called uh, tears in rain. And I, I love this section so much because in our heads, it was Roy had arrived at the foot of Tyrell Corporation and it's raining and he's standing there, you know, looking at this building, just sort of, you know, ready for the next step. And he's got these, you know, like tears coming down his face and he doesn't know why, like it's his programming or whatever. But, you know, there, there's that question, like, uh, could you differentiate the the tears from this downpour like like are are the tears that are falling from my face any different he's talking to tyrell here like any different from the water coming from the sky like it's all the same to you isn't it And you know that's about all he needs to to sort of step foot and 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 make his way into the into the building, and we all know what happens from there. And that's it. So, as uh, the prodigal son for you. Well,
1: <laughs> while you're creating this music, in terms of your approach, is this something where this pours out of you, and this everything is like just boom, boom, boom? As a, a writer and a creative person myself, I know that I have to have a vision first, or a vision in my head of what I want to do, and then it just kind of goes from there. So when you're writing this music and you're setting out to do track one, are these uh, ideas and concepts just bubbling at the surface for you, or are you really like, not that it, all of it is work, no matter if it comes easy or if it, it, there's a challenge there, but what is this like for you to create this music in terms of um, the just the complexity of it. it. Was it already there, and you're just kind of plucking it from your head?
0: Oh, if, if only. I, I wish that were the case. Um, it's it's a very very difficult process to be quite honest. I, I feel like in a way I become a different person uh, when I'm in a writing phase. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, in a way, I almost feel like I become less human. Um, I sort of shut myself out. You know, I, I become less sensitive to you know, things going around, uh, going on around me because I'm so sensitive, overly sensitive to what's going on in my brain and what I'm trying to reach when I'm trying to create, you know, all these things that I'm sort of reaching for and, and, and trying to create um, it's it's a very, very difficult process. Now that's not to say that making music is difficult for me. It is not make no mistake. Um, But making making this music, you know, for DeSona is the most difficult thing that I ever have to do. Um, and I think part of that is um, you asked if if the music starts, come, you know, sort of pouring out of me. And, and it does in a way. Um, I, I'm very similar to you in that I, I truly do need the story to be laid out first. Um, even if it's just, you know, oh, this song is going to be about, um, you know, two people going their separate ways. You know, that's that's something. That's better than nothing. But, the, you know, the more detail, the better. And from there, as soon as the conversations are happening, music is coming into my brain. But I don't know if you share these sentiments, but if, when I experience that, I also have a very strong filter. And and the filter can be right or wrong, but, it, you know, it's there regardless. And, and so as these ideas come in, my brain is saying, oh, that's garbage. Oh, that's garbage. No, no, no. Can't be like that. Like, you just thought about that. How can that be good? Garbage, garbage, garbage. So it's like throwing out all this stuff. And I, I, need, uh, I, need, I need at least a couple of weeks, if not more, you know, to warm up and, and having discarded thousands or tens of thousands of fleeting ideas. I need that to happen before I start to have faith in what I'm doing and things start to become clearer and I can start to actually realize, you know, oh, this, this is what the song is going to look like. This is what must happen in this song. And, you know, I may, during that time, even when I come to that realization, there may be five or 10 complete drafts that, that get created, you know, like just ask the other members of Desona. I've, I've, sent them a quote unquote final draft and they say, oh, this is great. And then like a couple of days later, I send them, you know, revision with the date and it's like, oh, it's, and they listen, and they said, this is also great, but like, why'd you change this? And I always have a reason, but who knows if it's me just going crazy or if it really was that I found, you know, the better version, but I like to believe, you know, if you can't sell this song to yourself, you, you, it has to start there. Even in a band with four other guys, it has to get past me and then it has to get past them. And then, you know, we start to think, okay, yeah, let's go into the studio and record this thing. Um, But it, it is a very, very grueling process. And, you know, while it's happening, very difficult, um, um, truth be told, but when it's all over and we're like in the phase that we are now, it's wonderful. Everything is, you know, absolutely incredible.
2: That's awesome. You know, something Jamie and I have talked about in our own creative projects in the past quite a bit is, um, is how hard it is to finish things. Not like to know when it's done or when it's ready, but like emotionally, it can be hard sometimes to leave a, to stop a project. Um, And I, I used to, especially like in the, like when I was, you know, grad school and stuff, like when I would finish something that I had worked on for three months alone and it was like out there and sent out to the players and it was out I I I always went through these kind of like depressive phases and I wonder if having like an album tour would have been helpful with that. Like, I feel like that, that must be a nice, cause you get to celebrate it, you know, um, which is really cool and you should because it's it's awesome music and the project is so cool and and one of the things that i love about it is how narrative it is and how programmatic it is like you were mentioning there's different characters in this um your singer david does such a wonderful job of embodying different you know aspects of this emotionally and vocally and using extended techniques and really cool stuff and uh but there's also like you said there's i mean literal narration at points in the background i'm not narration of the events that are happening but there's actual like you know People speaking, which is really cool, like this newscaster, for example. And in the video for The Prodigal Son, we have actual representations, I'm assuming, of Tyrell and Batty and, you know, places that you see in the movies uh, and places that you kind of imagine in the in the subtext of the films. And, uh, and I, I want to say, first off, I was really shocked at how well the actors that you chose embodied the characters, like considering that it's, you know, relatively little screen time, you know, that's a six minute or so song. And, you know, they're not in it the entire time, but you really, it's pretty unmistakable that like that's supposed to be Batty and that's supposed to be Tyrell. So I I guess if you could take us a little bit through the video for The Prodigal Son and
0: how that came to be, because it's really cool. Sure. I'd love to. We we actually didn't originally have plans to do a video. There was this sort of archaic uh, mindset the band had, and it was like, oh, we're never going to do a music video because of how imaginative the music is, the budget that we would need, you know, to to have a video representation representation of that would be astronomical. So we just sort of thought, why don't we just assume a a video will not be happening in the near future? And now here we have four. Um, what happened was um, most likely out of the sort of you know fuck you of the pandemic, we were like, all right, let's just go for it. Let's let's do this video. And um, you know, like everything we do, we were we were very very cautious with um, who's going to shoot the video. Um, I didn't think. I didn't necessarily think we'd be directing it, but, but after the first couple of meetings, it became very clear that we were directing it, but we had interviewed maybe four or five different, um, Chicagoland cinematographers. And, um, you know, so many of them, uh, were, were so, uh, positive. So, so interested in the project on the surface, you know, and then we tell them what, what it's about and they don't really have anything to say about the source material. And they're just like, oh yeah, this will be great. It'll be the best thing ever. Hire me. And then we met this guy, Daryl Miller. And, you know, he, uh, you know, his, I think his initial email back is, was just, I'll do it. Let's talk more. And then we had some zoom meetings and like, it was right away clear that this guy was the, the guy for the job. Like, I mean, he, um, huge Blade Runner fan, huge Philip K Dick fan, you know? Um, so he, he sort of helped shape, um, some of the, the, I guess you call them Easter eggs that we have in the video, um, he filled us in on all sorts of stuff that that we weren't previously um, uh, knowledgeable about when it came to Philip K. Dick and and whatnot. But um, you know his his creative vision, his approach. You know he, he was very similar in his um, uh, cinematic style as we are with the music. Where oh you know like it's got to be interesting. Like I don't want to shoot it that way because that's boring. You know that's too perfect. You know we don't want to do that. Um, so it it really was sort of a perfect marriage um and and, and so it, like like after we found him you know things sort of took off and and almost in a dangerous way his imagination was just about as wild as ours is um so you know we filmed that video over i think 6 or 7 different locations um we had uh shot the performance aspect of it in a gigantic uh production facility in Chicago called Cinecity i believe it was and we you know we blacked out the whole room and then we we had um, interestingly enough the like emergency lights that were left on on the ceiling those red things it was like oh that's perfect that that looks just like Blade Runner and we had the idea to um, have that moving spotlight you know the searchlight sort of deal that that we get those vibes from the movie so so we literally had a technician you know whose job was just keep the keep the spotlight moving the whole time so the whole that whole day was like a twelve hour day he's just spinning that guy he did a great job. Um and the blue light you know that choice all these things were 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 not just random they were all uh very very delicately chosen to make sure that our video has as much connection to Blade Runner as we possibly can while while it's still being like a fresh interpretation of that material so the beginning of the of the video um what you're seeing uh well that's uh th- that footage of the the moth uh pupa that you see um, sort of developing, and then, you know, you see the moth actually come out of its cocoon, and then you see it immediately eaten by a spider. Um, if you notice on the, uh, the security cam sort of overlay there, there's the little bitty Tyrell Corp in the corner. Uh, a lot of people, I don't think anyone has caught that yet, uh, but now you will. Um, but that's sort of our opening vision there is, you know, like you're actually from tyrell's viewpoint you know like getting getting you know like seeing maybe some subject that he had uh he was sort of monitoring um but then that very beginning part with roy that we see roy is clearly damaged um you know he, he's struggling he you know this was shortly after he would have landed on back on earth uh we shot that at a sort of an abandoned ironworks facility that's about 30 minutes from where we live um, so it was very cool and it was also raining that day which we had not it wasn't really the most comfortable shooting uh, situation, but it—I mean—it lended to the um, to the visuals very well, I thought. And um, so, so we see that with Roy. There's, you know, the scene on the bridge where he's holding his arm, and if, if you look closely, his arm is very damaged. It's bruised, like it's 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 almost you know kind of nearing just being useless. <laughs> uh, but you can see his serial number on there. All, all all stuff that the fans, you know, should pick up. You know, just like that, people who really really know the source material. <laughs> Um, and then we're taken into the, you know, we see uh, young Roy's eyes opening and we're in the lab. Um, that sequence was actually shot in the green room of <laughs> our old high school <laughs> and it worked out perfectly. You know, it's it's this beautiful, pristine, they had just painted the room too. It was perfect. Uh, so we got in there and we, we did what we needed to do. Um, and so we see, you know, we see uh, Tyrell, you know, examining Roy and, and making sure everything's okay. And then. Later on, you see Tyrell on stage and, and you know, our vision there is this is Tyrell presenting it, you know, to either um, uh, what's the term, like the uh, the people on the board, you know, like like the, the people supporting his company or just potential, um, you know, buyers. Maybe it's a military conference or something like that, but he's showing off, you know, his creation. Um, and then at the end of that, you know, you see something going on with Tyrell, like like Tyrell's got this headache and he's oozing this black goo. Uh, so we could talk about that. You know a little bit later, um, but then th- you know things happen. The, the, as I mentioned, you know the band enters finally, and we and we see Roy sort of traversing t- across the terrain. That's him making his way. N- nothing uh, too too extreme to explain there. And then we uh, we get to where David finally enters, and we start to see Roy and these you know beings that he's subduing, and and all sorts of interesting stuff that you definitely didn't see in the films. Um, well, those those beings. Um, in this interpretation, you could see them simply as, you know, sort of roadblocks that he's overcoming. But if you want to take it a little more literally, those are other beings that um, maybe perhaps are more recent models of Roy, um, and they contain this this uh, fluid, this blue fluid that you see, and he's using that, he's consuming that to give a temporary extension to his life, you know, just to keep him going enough to get to his end. So we see him, you know, subduing maybe two or three of those. And there's, you know, the the big confrontation later on with the with the elite, the one in, that has the white sash. Um, and that's the final one before, you know, he meets his maker ultimately. Um, and then we, we do meet his maker and his maker turns out to be some writer like in a cabin. What's going on there? Um, and that writer, you know, of course, symbolizes Philip K. Dick. Uh, The funny thing is he looks like that uh, Alan Moore, like (laughs) nothing like Philip K. Dick. I thought the same thing. I was like, it looks like Alan Moore. Yeah. Right. But, but we, you know, we wanted with the cabin scene, you know, like we wanted someone who looked sort of just, just, just decrepit, you know, your typical writer of any kind, you know, like we've all had that feeling of like, man, you just feel 20 years older after, you know, having this, this creation come finally come out of you. So he he was uh he was a perfect sort of visual for that. And again, like in there, there's tons of nice little details. You see, the typewriter that he's using is the exact typewriter that uh to our knowledge, you know, Philip K. Dick owned one of those IBM Selectric. We actually found a real one and it actually works. It was amazing. Found it at a at an estate sale 20 minutes from me. It was it was an incredible thing. Um, but you know, within the cabin, you see he's got um he's got his, his portrait of his wife. And eventually the portrait shifts to that Vesica Pisces, you know, symbol that, that Philip K. Dick had such a strange obsession with. Um, You see him struggling, you know, with his, like uh, his substance abuse and all, all of these things, you know, like as, as his sort of psychotic episodes are taking over all these things, you know, you're sort of inside the creator's mind, the real creator's mind. Um, So in a way, you know, the video, you're seeing, you know, Roy's journey, but you're also seeing the writer's journey, the real creator's journey and what he went through. And then, you know, these two sort of things coming together at the very end when Roy opens the door and there is, you know, like our writer, the two sort of paths are are sort of crossing right there at the end. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of layers to the video, I know, but but um, if, if you know the source material, if you read the lyrics and, and you start to give it a couple of extra viewings, there's plenty of of meat on there you know for the for the fans to to uh to consume over time. Yeah, it's really like a it's really a
2: short film. It's it's super cool. And, uh, and 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 I, I really recommend anybody listening to this obviously should should watch these so they know what we're talking about, uh, but also just because they're really beautiful homages to the to the source material. And I do want to talk about the goo, in and in a, and I don't know if there's a connection between the goo that's in uh, the prodigal son and the goo that's in skin job, or what. But there's there's goo seems to be a running theme in these videos. Uh, so you can correct me on that if, if they're not connected in a moment, but I do want to move on to skin job before we wrap here because it's fantastic and it's extremely different. Um, you know, whereas, uh, I feel like prodigal son has a lot of like tool in it, you know, I, I feel like the, like this, like skin job really ex- feels more industrial. It feels almost like has, has moments in it that feel almost like, like outrun music, like sort of, you know, like synth poppy. Uh, but still feels unmistakably like a disona track, you know, and it feels very much in keeping with the, with the first song we just talked about. But of course now we're moving into 2049 uh, and we're, you know, following officer K and his relationship with love and his relationship with his job. And uh, the vibe is very different. The video is very different. So take us a little bit through uh, through the song first, if you don't mind.
0: Absolutely. Um, so this song is much shorter. It's it's, I think it's under four minutes um, and this song, as you mentioned, focuses on, you know, Officer K and um, in the beginning parts of the song, you know, we're really, really digging into sort of his servitude. You know, he's he's a c- creation of ours and he works for ours. He he, he obeys us in in every way. Um, and that's it. That's, you know, the, the essence of his being. And he just sort of is bound to it. So, you know, there are lyrics in there, uh, my mind and my body are yours to command, you know, like some stuff is very, very clear there. And I, and I wanted that section in particular to feel so, uh, just like you can feel the chains around him, you know, like like this is just, this is what it is. And And I love that. I like, I know I wrote it, but I also just love that part. Um, there, there's so much of this music that I, I really do just, just, it just came out right. Um, but the song, you know, sort of the first half focuses on, on those elements of him, you know, like, like sort of him on the streets, just doing what it is that he needs to do and then rinse and repeat, like, do it again. K You know, constant K things just sort of keep going this way. You can rely on him. He picks up his bonus. That's the end of the day for him. Um, and then in the second half is where, you know, we start to feel like, oh, well, maybe he's not all. Balance, You know, like maybe there is this sort of part of him there that that could be pushed over the edge. And there's clear proof of that in 2049, you know, where he's struggling with like, am I uh, actually human? Like what? And you see him completely out of character, you know, just losing it with Deckard's uh, daughter in the in the whatever that room was, you know, where, where she's creating her memories and stuff. Um so, I wanted to play into that i knew i I wanted to sort of play with that contrast like this is a guy who's supposed to be constant k. I want to feel what it's like to to like feel the fire you know going off inside him where where everything is everything's been flipped you know like on its head um so that second half the action should hopefully be very palpable you know there's a lot of color, a lot of brilliance um uh stark contrast from the beginning and, you know, we can hear like, like the, the love, you know, sample in there, bad dog. I loved that. I'm, I'm like, yes, this is that kind of a taunt, you know, like that's gotta happen here because, um, you know, eventually they're going toe to toe later. And and I want to set that up. I want to feel, you know, like he's got this sort of a grudge, you know, that that's going on there. Uh, when, he, when he eventually confronts her, you know, later on in the song and obviously in the movie, um, but uh, really, it's just that it's those two halves. You've got the, the sort of cool headed K. And then in the second half, it's like, let's let's feel let's dig into that fiery K where he's sort of just thrown off completely. And let's see what happens. And so musically, like you
2: weren't necessarily trying to get a different aesthetic out of it. It just it was following the character and this, the kind of the rhythmic consistency of what he does day in and day out kind of fed into this much more synth heavy soundscape.
0: Well, we, DeSona, um, even since the, the 2012, um, I mean, even before that, technically, we, we've always had an affinity for electronic music. And uh, like on our 2016 album, you know, we had an all electronic track. It was electronic and I think there was some acoustic guitar added, um, but we've always had an affinity for it. So I guess we've sort of been waiting for our all electronic banger, you know, if you will. And this was the one where it was like, ah, oh, you know what, that, that just, I think that feels right now. Like, like we really need that here. Um, and, and if I really think about it, you know, something that cool headed and, and, um, I guess straightforward, you could say like, it, it, it wouldn't be something we would do as a full band. I don't think, I don't think the organic instruments would reflect it enough, you know, like, like as all of that electronic um, layering did and, and the sound design too like I, I had a lot of fun like with the sound effects in there um, t- t- creating some very very dirty you know like like unnatural not the prettiest sort of synth sounds but it's great for the track I feel like it really just gives you that vibe that you want
1: Approaching this entire project, Um, by the way, I love the title of it. I think it's great. It's just, it's just point. It's on point. I love it. How did you get to a place where like, okay, this is enough tracks. I know it's an EP. Um, Is it just, it felt like the right number? Three felt like the right number? Like, how did you know when to stop?
0: I think that was a sort of a reflection of um, like the very, very early conversations um, I, I'm pretty sure on Discord we, you know, we sort of played with three or five. So for some reason, four just doesn't feel right. It's gotta be three or five. So it came down to what are the stories we're telling and are they all going to be compelling. Um I remember um our drummer Drew, he had the idea, he he really wanted us to play into the lifespan and and you know how that might have an effect, you know, on on these beings. And um, you know, like me hearing that that was actually what helped me create one of the end sections in the prodigal son. But hearing that, that felt more like, yes, I can use that ingredient, but I don't think it has the legs for an entire track. So like it was decisions like that, that sort of made it sort of whittled down to three songs and these three characters. Of course, you know, the universe is filled with compelling characters, but these three, we, we wanted to explore uh, certain aspects of those three in particular. Just
2: saying, you could always revisit it because there's more than three characters in Blade Runner, so you know, if if you make that decision someday, there's definitely the material for it. <laughs> um, just before we wrap, I, I do want to talk about the video for Skinjob because it's very different and it's a lot more like atmospheric and uh, and a lot more, I think, um, a, a lot a lot not subtler, but it's it's a little more abstract, I think, than than the Prodigal Sons video. So uh, talk us a little bit through the creative process, and then also just like, is the goo that's in skin job related to the goo
0: that's in prodigal son, or am I just seeing goo everywhere I look? You're just seeing goo. Uh, no, let's, let's address that first. The goo in, in the prodigal son, it's, um, it's sort of supposed to illustrate that the world you're seeing in the beginning may not be what, what we would deem reality. There may be a different reality here. Um, that's the purpose of the goo there. The goo in, in skin job, Almost serves as a connection that this is from the same guys, from the same EP. You know, we're sort of—it's a link to this is all part, of, you know, pieces of a whole sort of deal. Um, but it also fits the the vibe of the song. That that song is so dirty. It's just you know like so grungy and. You know thick and and trudging so um you know we we just figured well we've created this goo we have this recipe for this goo um why don't we you know use it there as well you know and and i feel like it you know it worked so so wonderfully um for both videos uh but but going back into the skin job video itself um i knew that that was definitely many fewer locations than the prodigal son we shot that um the performance that you see David doing—that's all shot in one location. We had a, uh, a local um, theater, a nonprofit theater called uh, the Drama Group, and uh, I had reached out to them, and, and they—you know—they let us, you know, shoot there. They didn't charge us anything. It was—it was great. And um, we—we—I know I wanted something grungy, something that looked, you know, sort of crappy. I guess you could say. So I specifically didn't want like a new, like modern looking theater. Like, no, that place is perfect. All the lights are very old. I mean, most of them don't even work. So we turned off all the lights. We didn't use any lights in there. And we had this gigantic red led and uh, Daryl Miller, our cinematographer, he took that led and he turned it on, turned it to red and he just shot it right on the seats. And I was like, that's it. We're done. The lighting is done. So he had a little bit of front light on David and that was it. It was perfect. Um, So, uh, all of the performance stuff was shot there for David. Now the doll stuff that, that was, um, that was interesting. We had two days of shoots for the dolls. Um, and the dolls, you know, you you could see there, there are, there's a male and a uh, female, and there's some, some showing some, uh, you know, some poses of, um, uh, vulnerability, you know, stuff like that on both sides, you know, this isn't like, uh, any sort of like you know, or men are men are weak, or like women are weak. No, no, like it's showing that you know both both sides are experiencing these emotions. Um, especially in this universe, you know, like these these beings. Just because love is a female replicant does not mean she's any less powerful than you know Agent K. Like they're they're both you know very very formidable opponents. Um, so the dolls, you know, we we had all of these poses planned out, and we did two days of shoots on those in my apartment in my living room. And um the first day we shot uh wider stuff and then we, you know, we sort of liked what we had, but something just wasn't right. So the next day we shot, we uh had access to macro lenses. So we wanted to make sure those dolls look like monuments. So so a lot of those really huge, you know, um uh shots of the dolls that you're seeing. I mean, the dolls are probably eight feet tall. They're they're very, very small, but I loved that immediately. You know, the these things look like, you know, landscapes. And again, going back to twenty forty-nine, how great was that scene, you know, where where uh, Kay's about to meet Deckard, where you see this huge thing in front of the casino and it's it's like we wanted to, again, like it's it's a callback, but it's not just ripping off the movies. It's it's you know, a sort of an homage. Um, so we, we shot that stuff and and then we had, you know, the goo. We we played with that and dripping it and uh, you know, like in the edit, there were certain shots where I thought it looked much more compelling to have the goo reversed than than it did coming down. And that was there was no, you know, higher intellect involved there. It was just me looking at these images and and going with what I felt um, matched the energy better. Uh, but we had all that. And then um the other footage, there's there's, you know, um some stock footage involved um that I used um and then i you know like i heavily like affected but that's the the goal there was to try to take us to the streets try to show us um the atmosphere where k may be lurking um and still try to keep it you know like on the um interpretive side of things uh, not not so directly you know we're we're not going to chicago and going in the streets and shooting like another you know like replicant walking the streets no it's just a little bit of that um, you see, you see what maybe uh, again, going back to 2049 where, where Kay is, has that memory of him as a, as a younger Kay, um, you know, finding the, uh, the horse, which I have right here. Ah, uh-huh. um, prop. You bet. Uh, but that was, you know, there's a scene in the, in the video, in the skin job video where you see a young child with his bursting flame, you know, like, like, Um, so that's metaphorical of course, but also it's, you know, again, another sort of homage to the film, like, like these, uh, you know, maybe these false memories, uh, something, something going on there. Um, and then in the later half you see the chessboard, you know, like, like the metaphor there, obviously him and him in love, the, the the queen and the rook. And I think there's a knight in there. I don't know. Um, but the, the whole chessboard gets lit on fire. It's just beautiful footage, you know? And, and I just, I, I, as with everything else, I was extremely meticulous in what I chose to use and what I didn't use, um, and how it's presented, of course. Um, uh, but, uh, all, all of those pieces, uh, you know, hopefully came together for an exciting and compelling video.
1: It sure did. It was definitely that for sure. And, uh, it, it was great more than great. That's the wrong word. I love seeing subtext, um, brought to life where you're not, it's, it's, clues it's it's a wink of the you know uh uh, a tip of the hat here and um something over here but it's not really telling us but if you know you know and i love those things about it i know that uh, patrick and i could probably sit here and talk about uh, blade runner and our inspiration for blade runner all night long um there's no real way great way to end this discussion but i I do want to say thank you matt for coming on the show um uh but before we leave i definitely want to um ask you how uh our listeners can find out more about Dissona, um this forthcoming ep uh it's not quite out yet but it's on the way out correct
0: absolutely so uh yes the band name is Dissona. that's d-i-s-s-o-n-a uh, we're on all social media uh the website is dot uh you can find the EP to pre-save on Spotify or all streaming platforms it will drop fully and officially on November 10th of this year um by this time by the time you're hearing this there should be at least two singles already out which you can find on all streaming platforms um and then uh, obviously find the videos on YouTube do what you will comment like subscribe all the good stuff yeah, man. I'm so glad we were able to connect. This has been awesome. I'm so glad
2: that I got introduced to your band. As you and I have discussed, I'm, I'm a very big metal fan in, in my personal life, and I'm really excited to have discovered new music. And uh, I sure hope that our listeners also, you know, give you guys a listen and uh, hopefully a subscribe and a, you know, get some music on streaming services as well. So uh, thank you so much for being here, Matt. And, uh, and please extend our thanks to your whole band to David and Drew and Craig. And, uh, you know, also just everybody else who, you know, did the amazing production with the videos and things. It's just, it's a labor of love as has shoulder Ryan been for the last six years. And so we feel you on that and we appreciate what you do. So thank you for being here, man.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Like it's so refreshing to meet other people that, you know, share this, uh, this passion as much as we do so thanks again for having me awesome and thank you everybody for listening